The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the Michael Jackson edition. It's Wednesday, March 6th, 2019. You may have noticed the absence of a glib title uh, f- uh, for today's show. We're doing something different, and I'm pretty sure unprecedented for us. We're going to spend the whole time talking about a single subject, the two-part, four-hour HBO documentary, Leaving Neverland, from director Dan Reed. Uh, I do not think that this is a hard decision to justify. There's scarcely a more important figure in the history of music or popular culture than Michael Jackson, and he is likely to hold on to the record for the highest-selling album of all time forever. He broke a color barrier, but that is so reductively small next to the totality of his achievements. Um, He's completely unconstrained to this day by any traditional categories of taste or identity. First, let me introduce my co-host, of course. Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. And of course, Julia Turner is deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. Later, we'll be joined by Christina Cotarucci to discuss the um, allegations of abuse um, in a slightly more legalistic uh, way, and then by Carl Wilson to discuss Jackson's legacy. I should also say, before we dig in in earnest, our regular listeners know it is my common practice not to talk about HBO production since my husband works there on the comedy series department, um, and we've decided that this document, which comes from an entirely different team at HBO that has absolutely nothing to do with him, uh, has enough cultural significance that it makes sense for me to join for this episode devoted entirely to its claims and its form and the pop star at the center of it. So that's why we're breaking with practice today. Certainly as far from comedy as you can get. Yep. Superlatives tend to make for terrible criticism, but in this instance, he I really believe this, he's the biggest pop star of all time. And really, there's nobody in the field of vision coming in second. Um, he almost single-handedly put the rock era behind us, behind him. Uh, he was along with Madonna, the first and defining star um, for MTV, thus bringing pop music together with multimedia platforming television, you know, preeminently, and becoming the first truly global pop star, in addition to being completely unconstrained by these categories of taste and identity. As I said, he was also never in some way quite human he always contained within his magical innocence its opposite the monster in fact the defining document of his career i think still is the thriller video which you know i was a completely sentient teenage being when it was in constant rotation on mtv it played a huge role in taking thriller to it's been estimated between 66 and 100 million sales which puts it at a factor of three or four over some of its closest competitors for all-time biggest-selling uh, disc. Um, but that video discloses him as a monster. That's what's so strange about it and disorienting about it in retrospect. Its startling final image confesses that he is part demonic beast. And since his death in 2009 and even leading up to it, the um, suspicion was proving out to be true. Um, the accusation was that he was a child molester and it followed him to the grave. And it's now been awoken, reawoken with force with the documentary Leaving Neverland. All right, before we do the clip, though, I should say, um, I want to name both of these remarkable men. Well, the first is Wade Robson, who was a tiny little Australian boy. I mean, a really miniature little adorable human being who could dance like the king of pop practically before he could speak. He was uncannily gifted mover of his own 
little body, um, uh, an extraordinary talent. And he won a competition uh, in Australia that allowed him to meet Michael Jackson while he was on tour, subsequently moved to the States to pursue a career in show business. And he ended up being sexually abused by Michael Jackson between the ages of seven and 14, allegedly. Um, the voice you're about to hear is the voice of James Safechuck, the other man from the documentary. He was a California kid, kind of ranch house suburbia style upbringing. He tells substantially the same story as uh, of uh, Robson. Um, he appeared as a 10-year-old in the very first Pepsi ad made by Michael Jackson at the time, a kind of iconic ad in which a little boy finds his way into the dressing room of Jackson, tries on, I believe, his fedora, and then the man himself appears behind him magically. He ended up uh, being groomed and abused by Jackson for several years, starting at the age of 10. Let's listen to the clip. He had a beautiful wine cellar, you know, really good wines, champagne. That was just something I enjoyed. It was a fairy tale every night. The routine was we would get a blanket and lay it down on the floor inside of the closet next to his his main bed so we could close the doors and have like several sort of doors people had to get through. There's just a hall that leads to his room. So there were bells so you, you could have a moment of hearing them trip and at least it alarmed him to when people are coming. He had another house far away from the main house. And then there he had a lot of memorabilia in his jackets from like the Grammys, the rhinestone ones, and his glove. And that was far away from people. And you could see somebody was driving up his narrow road. And we would have sex in there too. Dana, this is a astonishing and in many ways very difficult four hours of viewing. It's uh, riveting, not to trivialize it in any way, but um, I didn't really wish it were any shorter, uh, but for a couple of maybe slightly loving drone shots, too many, one or two, too, too many. But um, what did you... Uh what did you make of this? Yeah, it, it is strange to watch a four-hour documentary that essentially is just about two people's stories and spends so much time with them, is so patient with them, and yet leaves you wishing the documentary were a little longer. And we can get to the things that we wish were in there that are not in there. There are, I guess, aesthetic criticisms, or not just aesthetic, but structural or formal or even legalistic criticisms to be made about how the director, Dan Reed, frames his material. But I don't want to make them right now in our first segment when we're just responding to this as a document and something that we've just experienced and that culture is just now experiencing because my primary reaction to it is that everyone should see it and that I can't stop thinking about it since having seen it, regardless of whatever, you know, those those formal deficits might be, because what it does deliver is just something that feels so unusual in the context of this case in particular, and also of the way that we talk about sexual assault and abuse and have been over these past few years, which is really just sitting with the victims and almost almost as if we were in a, a psychotherapy session with them, just slowly walking through all of their memories mm. of this formative and incredibly damaging event in their lives. And I think maybe a lot of people, I, this was the case for sure with me, went into this sort of already suspecting that we understood something about Michael Jackson's relationship to children based on, you know, the trials we've seen in public, all the documentaries and stories that have already been out there. But it's impossible to watch this and not feel a different way about, I think, the Jackson legacy and about those cases, even if you go in knowing that you're already going to believe the victims. Uh, I don't know if the two of you shared this experience, but 
after you've sat and sort of watched these two men in close up think through and work through these these memories on camera there's there's no way you can disbelieve them. I mean, we're putting allegedly on all of our statements here because, of course, none of these allegations have been proven in a court of law. But, I mean, one of the things that would require for these men to be lying would be that they're the greatest actors of all time, as is every member of their family. Everybody would have had to yes. have been so rehearsed and coached down to the last syllable and the last sort of eye blink and the last reaction. There just doesn't seem to be any way that something as detailed, as heartfelt, and as convergent as their two stories are when they didn't know each other at all at the time to to be false testimony. It's an incredible journey to watch this surface, to use a cliched word, but to watch this story rise to the surface of these young men's consciousness and faces. Um, and to me, I agree with Dana, it required those four hours um, in order for one to move from an abstract notion of Michael Jackson as a monster and possible child abuser into the depth and the reality of the spell that he put on two families' uh, lives in order to gain access, sexual access to these children. How did you feel about this documentary? I would agree with Dana's recommendation that people really should see it. It's one of those films that if you've heard about it and heard people talking about it, and have a general inkling that you might be interested in it, you still might of a, you know, Thursday night after work think, I don't know if I'm in the mood for four hours of child sex abuse stories um, because whoever is or would be. But um, the part that I actually found most rare and powerful is the second half of the documentary where the film begins to explore how it was that as adults these men began to be able to think critically about what happened to them with a little bit more distance and began to recognize the damage and separate themselves from the beliefs that Michael Jackson inculcated of, you know, this is between us, you can never tell anybody, you know, just all of the sinister trappings that they had absorbed into their minds at these incredibly young, heartbreakingly young ages watching that and and hearing how their families of birth and their wives began to understand what had happened to these men. Th this film is not nearly as interested in Michael Jackson as it is in the experience of these men. And that is the part about it that feels most radical and interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I agree. In fact, the setup yeah. that Steve gave of Michael Jackson's career at the top of this podcast is much more time than the documentary devotes to sort of setting up who he was. There's not what you might expect, some sort of montage of clips of him growing up in the Jackson 5 and then, you know, becoming an adult artist yeah. and getting some sort of background. I mean, it just sort of assumes, right? I mean, this documentary departs from the assumption that by default, we all know a a lot about who Michael Jackson is as an artist and probably a fair amount about his legal troubles as well. And that we're really just going to stay, you know, on the couch with these two guys. Yes and no, though. I mean, I think what makes the story unique isn't the salaciousness of it being Michael Jackson and the kind of horrible dark thrill of watching not only a celebrity, but maybe the biggest celebrity of all time brought down to size and even in some way destroyed. What, what, what makes it critical that it's Michael Jackson is how with every kid who grew up with Michael Jackson, but especially these kids, he worked his way into your consciousness as two things, both as a peer, because he himself appeared to have never gone through puberty. He was sort of without a definite 
sexual aspect in some respects. Obviously, he was also hypersexualized. He was hypersexualized before he went through puberty, right, in the Jackson 5. But there was a way in which he was sort of pansexual and asexual and very childlike or pre-sexual or whatever you want to describe it. And so he was kind of eye level to the kids who fell in love with them before he could before they could even speak. Um, and then especially with these two kids, because he enabled both of their showbiz careers to a degree. And in the case of Wade Robson, Wade Robson internalized the image and the movements of Michael Jackson into his person before he could speak. And that made him a dancer. And he grew up to become a super highly accomplished choreographer, choreographer for Britney Spears and NSYNC, in part by taking these moves that he'd learned in a kind of pre-conscious state as a lover of, of Michael Jackson's music. And so I agree with you completely that this is told entirely through the point of view of these two two young men. It is them taking possession of and telling their story. But part of that story is the degree to which they internalized this showbiz image and therefore how fucking unreal it was to have him appear to have this apparition of the actual human being that you'd already had formed this relationship with, to have that actual human being enter your life in in both an extraordinary and a completely ordinary way. I mean, one of the strangest details, one of the most moving, one of the most difficult, like painfully ambiguous details from the documentary is that Michael Jackson appears to have legitimately fallen in love with the family, the Safechuck family and found a haven in their modest little ranch house at the height of his fame, he would escape his own celebrity imprisonment and go to their house to do fucking laundry and spend the night and have a home-cooked meal. Um, I believe that happened. Um, there's plenty of documentary evidence that happened, but I also believe that it was done out of a keening sense of loneliness uh, on the part of Michael Jackson. Um, this is so... The, the, the tragedy and the sadness of this documentary... Uh, uh, as a document of like late 20th century loneliness, American loneliness um, moves in all directions, I think. But um, I, I, a couple qu- things quickly is like, I, I mean, on a first pass, what's so moving about this is, is, the, is the two men um, whose maturity, forthrightness, grace, self-possession, you know, was so fucking hard earned. And um, they they now at this moment in their lives appear like maybe not the total opposite, but very different from our ordinary stereotype of a showbiz kid who is destroyed by showbiz. You know, um, they, they, they are the model of poise and people who have fought their way to become the tellers of their own narratives. And, and, and Dana, you're right. They're the opposite of rehearsed. I mean, I kept thinking this may be the first time they've really had a chance to tell the whole story in their own words from beginning to end, um, uninterrupted, which is why at those moments when the grief, you know, there, there is that way in, in which one overhears oneself when one speaks and moments of grief, like genuine grief, arise when you hear yourself for the first time tell the truth about something that you've buried and it overwhelms you and there is no way either one of these men is lying when that happens none i agree with you both everybody should watch this documentary everything you say makes so much sense to me steve and i hearing you talk about jackson's youth and his own celebrity and and how strange he was all of that is true and 
explains, I think, some of how we all received these allegations and accusations over time, because, of course, they've been in the public consciousness since the early 90s when there was the first lawsuit about it. I, I think, again, that's where I think the restraint of this movie having the power, essentially the thing that none of these families or boys could do was put aside how compelling and magnetic Jackson and his own story were and his music and his body and his movements. Like he was just this incredible, dense celebrity object that sucked things towards him. And that is is almost what makes me admire more than anything, the discipline of this documentary in not looking that way and just leaving that all as implicit and not trying to explain well, Jackson was a perpetrator, but he probably was also some kind of victim. And he, although, of course, probably most of them are, but he's, he seemed particularly uncanny. And we, you know, like, it, you get touches of it, you get brushes of it with that sense of like, he's really just partying at this ranch house in Simi Valley with the safe Chuck family trying to avoid the trappings of his fame. You you get glancing visions of it, but um, it's really hard not to be interested in Michael Jackson and this movie this movie's discipline in holding him at arm's length, I just think is incredibly thoughtful and effective. Something that struck me so much was how similarly the chronology of their lives went after the abuse. I mean, they're around the same age. I think Safe Chuck is a few years older, but it was essentially the same part of their childhood that was damaged, occupied, ruined by Michael Jackson. And it was essentially the same part of their adulthood that they started to be able to grapple with it and feel like maybe I will tell someone, maybe I will tell my wife, my mother, the truth about what happened. And in both cases, it was because they had a son and that both of them attribute the fact that they had a child of their own to the fact that they started to reckon with these things from the past. And that's the part of the movie, I think, Julia, as you said, that becomes about much, much more than Michael Jackson in this particular case and even these two particular men and really becomes about how incredibly, incredibly powerful it is to tell the truth, to tell one's own truth about something that's stigmatized and painful and shameful. And that's why, ultimately, even though this is a hard watch, it's definitely a hard four-hour sit with a lot of parts that you may want to stop and turn off and think about for a while, it ends on a on a feeling of, I mean, uplift is completely the wrong word, but it ends on some sense of hope because it does seem like these two men are not irreparably damaged and that speaking the truth has helped them to be able to go on. Yeah. Oh, God, yes, absolutely. You know, something we should talk about before closing is also the mothers who are a huge part of the documentary. The mother of Wade Robson, who is an Australian woman who moved her entire family or most of her family from Australia because of her son's rising stardom and because of his connection with Michael Jackson and the mother of James Safechuck, who also in complicated ways got financial benefits from Jackson and profited from their relationship while also seeming to be genuinely devoted to him, Steve, as you said, having him into their home and so forth. Uh, The moms are such huge characters in this that I feel like we have to talk and respond a little bit to them. I I almost think you could have had a whole nother four hour documentary just about the moms because the film necessarily spends most of its time with Wade and James. But with the moms, you have a sense by the end of the film that Stephanie Safechuck has come to understand. I mean, she claims to have reveled and done a dance on the day of Michael Jackson's death because he couldn't hurt any more children. And that the film, unless I'm mistaken, doesn't quite put its finger on exactly when 
she figured out that he was hurting children. There's a much clearer timeline um, in the film uh, of understanding how Wade Robson began to come clean to his family and his mother about the damage that was done to him. And his mother, it's not, it, it feels slightly less clear to me that she has fully reckoned with what happened and what her accountability for it might be. Well, can I tell you, this is not in the documentary, but something that I just read about Joy Robson's response to the documentary that was quite shocking to me is that she has seen the documentary, but she won't watch the parts in which her son talks about his abuse. She she had the director show her the documentary, but wouldn't watch those parts. And her son, Wade, has responded in print to that saying, you know, this is, he said it in a mild way, but, you know, that it was upsetting to him and that the whole idea was supposed to be to confront the actual details of what happened. So to me, that seemed like a there are moments that you you feel some some real moral qualms about both of these mothers, but to hear that after all this, Joy Robson will still not watch the hard parts of the documentary, the parts that you know people who don't even know Wade Robson have all sat through, seemed uh, seemed pretty mm. disturbing to me. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a way in which this documentary dovetails all too sickeningly with abducted in plain sight, in which the question over and over again is, how did you do this to your child? How did you allow this to happen to your child? And I think maternal culpability is a really complex question, whether we villainize mothers uh, automatically because we so naturalize the bond between mother and child and, and fetishize and sentimentalize it in ways that no actual human relationship can bear. You know, nonetheless, like, I do think both of these young men, much of what they're saying is directed to the camera, but also towards their mothers. I mean, they are, to the extent that they are in therapy, it's not only because Michael Jackson violated their dignity and stole their childhood from them and raped them. Uh, It's also because they're, you know, they have to come to grips with what their mother or at least the suspicion that their mother allowed it to happen and thus forsook them for money or celebrity or something. Um, And I think the thing that occurred to me over and over again as I was watching this is, you know, the heartbreaking truth is that getting a small child to submit to the will of a grown-up is easy once you get the mother to relinquish him to you, right? Um, Once the the strongest and the most natural bond is in some respects that of a mother to a child and and Michael Jackson and this is what makes him as sinister to me as any human being um, imaginable is that he understood this and so he worked those mothers and he knew he was working those mothers and he knew that the moment that he could rupture the maternal bond those kids were his uh, and he pushed it you know he he asked to take possession sole possession of one of the two kids i believe it's wade for a full year it was wade uh and the mother finally found you know her inner limit um to which jackson says you know in this very pointed way he says i always get what i want but um to me the mothers are are at the center of the story in every way pr- principally because they're psychologically at the center of the exorcism that these two young men have to go through if you go back to where you were with this whole story before leaving Neverland, right, the place that this Michael Jackson, these legal imbroglios existed in your mind, that I would argue, I mean, even if you suspected the victims were telling the truth, it was a place of ambiguity, right? We didn't know exactly. He he was never convicted at trial, etc. But a way that it was always talked about at the time, as I remember in the 2005 trial, for example, was to demonize the mothers almost in place of 
Michael Jackson, that, you know, how could anyone put their kid in that scenario in the first place and that the conversation would sort of end there. And something that's admirable about this documentary is that it doesn't get leave the mothers completely off the hook, but nor does it demonize them and thereby take any of the of the onus off the one who actually committed the alleged crimes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, before we dig in further, Julia, we have some business, I'm sure. Not too much business this week. We just want to let you know about the topic of our Sleep Plus segment. Uh, We had a lot to say about this film amongst ourselves and with our various guests. And so you will hear selected extras from that conversation in our Sleep Plus bonus segment. All right. We're now joined by Christina Cotarucci, who is a Slate staff writer. She's also a host of The Waves, a Slate's podcast on gender and feminism. Christina, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, So you wrote for a great piece for Slate. um, And uh, let me read the title. It's how leaving Neverland does a disservice to Michael Jackson's accusers. Um, And what I loved about the piece is that it was an intelligent critique of the movie that didn't in any way cast doubt or suspicion of any kind on the two accusers. Why don't you just why don't we just begin by having you summarize your argument? I mean, what about the documentary did a disservice to these to these two young men? So first of all, I should say, you know, I I definitely believe the the two accusers who are in the documentary. So I came into this piece trying to evaluate the criticisms that other people were launching at the accusers themselves, having not seen the film. And I found that there were a lot of points of Robson and Safechuck's history that they kept bringing up over and over again. So the fact that they had tried to get money from Jackson's estate, the fact that Robson had tried to get Jackson's estate to hire him to direct a show. And, you know, only after that, only after he was snubbed, uh, did he accuse Jackson of sexual abuse. The fact that he shopped around a book about the abuse. The through line of all of those criticisms of the accusers themselves was that, you know, these two men are just trying to get money by manufacturing falsities about Michael Jackson the same criticisms that those people and Jackson's fans and Jackson's estate and Jackson's lawyers had levied against his two previous accusers, Jordan Chandler and Gavin Arvizo. Um, And so I thought, you know, this documentary, which I think was extremely well made in in many other respects, and which uh, I think made a really compelling case for the veracity of the accusations it presented, why didn't it try to address some of the criticism that seems so obvious to me, like people have been saying these things for years because Safe Chuck and Robson have been alleging this abuse for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it that there it left a big gap in the story where it seemed like it was leaving out, um, you know, information that might have harmed them or or made them seem less trustworthy. But in doing so, it didn't give them a chance to really address and explain that information. Um, and uh, so it, they, it didn't make them less credible for me, but I think for people who are inclined to view their accusations with skepticism, it might make it might make them seem less credible. 
briefly describe maybe why these criticisms don't shake your belief in the story these two guys tell? I mean, it's I find it very easy to hold multiple truths about these men in my mind at once. The fact that uh, they they loved Michael Jackson uh, and the fact that Michael Jackson abused them and now they feel, you know, betrayed and and that they've uh, their lives have been, you know, thrown off track in many ways by that abuse. Uh, the the fact that both um, they were abused by Michael Jackson and the fact that they desire some monetary compensation for the the damage that they are continuing to grapple with. I, I believe that people can want money for more reasons than, you know, greed, that it can be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, partially punitive because it was Ma- Michael Jackson's fame and wealth that allowed him to allegedly abuse several young boys and also because they deserve compensation for the abuse they suffered. So for me, those things don't cancel each other out. I don't think it's unseemly for victims of abuse to try to uh, seek compensation. I don't think it's unseemly or uncharacteristic of a victim of abuse to attend a memorial service for the man who abused him. I mean, Robson, um, you know, addresses that a little bit in the film. Um, but like, I think the film makes a very powerful case for the love and attachment that the boys and their families felt for Michael Jackson. Um, and one of the things the film does best in my opinion, is showing how uh, those attachments and and maybe the fears that Michael Jackson instilled in them as boys, you know, if you come out against me, we're both going to jail for life. And the fact that, you know, their mothers basically encourage them to think of Michael Jackson as a father or a brother figure. Those things don't go away when you turn 18 and become an adult, you know, sometimes because they were children when this abuse occurred and Michael Jackson was sort of imprinting himself in their minds as this loving and caring protective figure um, and lover almost. Um, you know, for, for these, these men, they're still, it seems like their perceptions of that abuse are evolving. Um, so, you know, the fact that Wade Robson testified on Michael Jackson's behalf in the 2005 trial, um, I, I feel like it, the film glossed over a little bit the, the actual machinations of that trial. And, you know, Robson talks a little bit about why he decided to testify on Jackson's behalf, but um, it still left a lot of room for people who still think like, oh, Gavin Arvizo, isn't that the person whose family was just scamming a lot of celebrities to say, you know, it, it makes sense that the Robson family and the Arvizo family would sort of be um, in the same category of people trying to extort the Jackson estate for money. Christina, you've uh, reported a number of stories about sexual assault accusations, and I've edited a number of stories on the subject. And you are 100 percent right that this documentary does not do the tough and also protective work that I think most good responsible journalism on sexual assault accusations must do, which is really try to put the accuser through the ringer ahead of publication and inoculate or answer the questions that a skeptic might have about their claims in the piece itself so that you're not putting the accuser out to suffer those questions for the first time um, without that being incorporated into the fundamental document of journalism that you're making. 
I, I, you know, we've had those conversations. You've had those conversations with other editors. I've had those conversations with other writers. It's, it's part of the journalistic work of telling this kind of story. I will say that I found this document to be very different in its focus because of the choices it made in that regard. And the fact that it just lets you sit with the testimony of these accusers and spend so much time immersed in their emotional reality and their memories um, does something very different than typical pieces and, and almost um, almost seem to be making a different point, seem to be making, uh, seem to be trying to tell the story of being a victim of child sex abuse and how that complicates and confuses your growing child brain and how you begin to process that experience later on in life. Like, I wonder, do, do you think that the documentary could have had the same emotional impact in the way that it bears witness to a victim experience if it had been a more traditional journalistic document that was focused primarily on um, the guilt or innocence of the accused? Uh, I mean, you make a good point. I I do think that the narrow focus of the documentary is one of its strengths. Um, you know, the viewer really has the time and uh, the the space and the depth of story to really explore what child sexual abuse was like for these two people, uh, how their own um, conceptions of that abuse shifted over time, how complicated things get when this larger than life man, um, you know, inserts himself into your life and imprints himself on your childhood brain as this loving partner. Um, but on the other hand, I think the I guess the question is, what was Dan Reed trying to do and what uh, what audience is this documentary for? Um, you know, this is uh, not the first time that Robson and Safechuck have made these allegations. They've both made them publicly before. But this is, without a doubt, the most impactful and, you know, high production value um, piece of uh culture or, or consumable material to make those accusations. So I think because of that, because of the outsized place this documentary will have and is having on the discussion of Michael Jackson and our understanding of his life and alleged abuse, that um, I think Dan Reed had a responsibility to complement that very in-depth and sensitive portrayal of sexual abuse victims with um, an honest reckoning with the criticisms that were certainly going to be made. I mean, anyone could have predicted the exact questions that or or accusations the skeptics would make and are indeed making. Um, I think uh, I personally felt like the documentary almost spent a little too much time painting the picture of of how they got into Jackson's orbit and how much they loved him. I felt like it dragged a little bit. I could see plenty of space in the documentary for just some additional questions. Like Robson's sister says that she called Jackson's previous accusers money-grubbing liars or gold diggers, you know, and now she feels really bad about it now that she realizes that her own brother had been abused. So, you know, why not ask them, like, wh why did you think they were gold diggers? Oh, because their parents were seemed like scammers? Well, weren't yours or or were yours? Um, and uh, 
I, I actually think it would have helped people understand Robson and Savechuck's thinking more if they were able to explain why a victim of abuse might go after money from this incredibly rich and famous man's estate. I have some thoughts about why they might, and and I certainly don't think it's wrong of them to do that. But I I would love to know, you know, as a victim of child sexual abuse, what would that do for you? Like, is that are you looking for closure? Are you looking for money to help you, you know, move on and 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 get medical help and mental health services? Um, is it because you feel like money is the only language that the Jackson estate speaks um, or or that a verdict in your favor will finally settle the public conversation around him? Like, these are things that I am, am left wondering about Robson and Safechuck's thought process and um growth process and healing process, um, even though the documentary told me so much about so many other aspects of it. Do you agree, Christina, with the director Dan Reed's decision to not give any voice to anyone from the Jackson estate or any representatives of of his family? Do you think that, for in other words, that, that the things that should have been done differently should have been done through just asking different questions of the same subjects? Yeah, I, I personally don't think that he needed to include a response from the Jackson estate in the documentary, in part because, as Julia said, it's not a strict uh, piece of journalism. Um, but I and my concerns actually um, aren't necessarily about the fairness to the memory of Michael Jackson or the Jackson estate, because I think the evidence is so clearly on one side. And I think the Jackson estate's response has been very much the same as it was to the previous accusers. And, you know, it does include clips of Jackson's lawyers making those arguments at the time. Um, so in that way, I think it does it, – it depicts possibly one-sidedly um, the response to some of these accusations. Uh, I don't think it would have – I think you could – the Dan Reed's decision to make this about victims of sexual abuse – dealing with that abuse um, isn't wrong and that and he could have addressed some of the critics um, questions or accusations without any input from the Jackson estate. What do you guys think? I think that's right. I mean, I also I guess one other thing that I that this way of constructing this documentary made me think about is a broader trend that I think we've seen in the reporting around sexual assault for the last two years, which is journalists and other tellers of stories getting past a traditional hang-up about looking for the quote-unquote perfect victim, that you had to find someone with a completely unimpeachable record and no possible disqualifying or discrediting facet of their narrative in order to take the, the testimony of an accuser and give that the same weight that you might give the presumed innocence of the accused. And, you know, I think we saw this in Ronan Farrow's reporting on Harvey Weinstein, his decision to include the Asia Argento story, even though she was his Harvey Weinstein's girlfriend and was in a consensual relationship with him. And she accuses within that relationship uh, Weinstein of of rape within a consensual romantic relationship. Like that's a complicated ac accusation. That's the kind of accusation that I think journalists and other outlets and the lawyers who advise them might have shied away from including. And I think similarly in the Les Moonves accusations, one of the people is someone who's involved with Viacom and the Redstones and is someone who 
you know, a, a more traditional approach to this kind of storytelling might have said, well, maybe let's not include her narrative. Like, that's just complicated. Everything that's going on with that com- company is complicated. Let's find some other people who can tell this story. And so I do think there's this increasing trend to give weight to the experience of people whose biographies and actions also might give any reasonable person pause and reason to ask questions. And it, it is fair, I think, to say, well, what what does it mean that you testified on Jackson's behalf? And what does it mean that you shopped a book deal or tried to get a job out of the the estate? And yet, really, if you spend time listening to these men's stories, just the clarity and precision of their narrative and the way in which you watched the emotions play across their faces, I just was, I felt utterly persuaded and also admiring of the bravery of the men just deciding to tell their story and sort of sit there and take whatever is going to come in it. And I also think, given the virulence of the the defense of Jackson from the estate and from his super fans, I'm not sure there's any version of this documentary that would have... No, no matter how assiduously it acknowledged every possible knock against their narratives, it's hard to imagine a version of the documentary that would cause some of these most avid fans to be like, oh, darn, I was wrong. He really did do that. All right. Well, um, the piece is How Leaving Neverland Does a Disservice to Michael Jackson's Accusers. Christina, thank you so much for coming back on the show. This was a great segment. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, we're joined by Carl Wilson, who is, of course, uh, Slate's music critic and a very good friend of this program. Carl, welcome back to the show. Nice to be here. Uh, yes. Uh, sad to be here as well as nice to be here. Your piece for Slate, which is terrific, is called Jackson's Legacy. It's too late to cancel Michael Jackson. You start with a remarkable comparison between Michael Jackson and Charles Dickens. What, 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 what led you to begin there? Well, there was just this piece of research that came out um, in the past couple of weeks confirming a terrible story about Dickens that when he was dumping his wife um, to take up with this 18-year-old actress, um, the latter part of the story has been well known, but what we didn't know is that he tried to have his wife committed to an insane asylum um, and only failed to do so because the doctor he approached refused to do it. Um, And that it just struck me um, that Dickens in many ways is um, if you project across a century, the same kind of level of Titanic figure in both kind of artistic achievement and enormous popularity in his form um, that Jackson really is to post-war American pop music and global pop music really. And approaching the question of what you do with the fact that the the person behind that story and the person behind the, that work um, may have been reprehensible on a lot of levels, um, seemed like a way of throwing this sort of current sense of confusion about what we do if we um, believe these stories about Michael Jackson, how we look at his work. Um, it's, it felt like taking a, a historical step back might be helpful on that level. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like Dickens, Dickens isn't, you don't have to read Dickens for him to be part of your your consciousness, and it, you know, it, canceling Michael Jackson is like canceling your DNA. I mean, you're gonna. I mean, I, I think according to your argument, you're gonna sort of eradicate what is ineradicably part of your own self if you try. 
And also that it's not just part of about ourselves, right? Like one of the things that I wanted to say is that no matter what each individual person does with their own conscience and their relationship to an artist's work after these things, the cultural history remains cultural history. And if you care about that level of things, which I certainly do as a critic, but I think that we all should as participants in culture, then canceling is a little bit of a of a fantasy. It's the it's a category we've invented in ways that lets us kind of show off our own emotional responses and try and sort of show that we're on the right side in terms of justice, but it doesn't really relate to how culture works. Carl, that's so interesting. I mean, of course that's in your piece, but I hadn't hadn't really even quite processed, I think, that essentially you're uh, that you can't we don't actually have the volition to cancel anybody particularly because the work we we can change how we personally respond to things institutions can change whether they you know put michael jackson on starbucks mix cds or whatever else but um there's a level on which culture works that's beyond what we can control yeah and on on the secondary level too there's also a really big difference between dealing with a living figure who still um, is within the reach of of actual earthly justice um, and and needs to be dealt with and made accountable for what they've done and and then with the dead who you know are, are, is beyond all that and it's really what we collectively want to do with a moral judgment that we can't exercise in any sort of legal or or practical fashion and and that we're left with this quite the set of questions in our own head about icons and our relationship to them. Carl, there's there's a, a line from the documentary that you quote in your in your piece on it, this which is absolutely wonderful, by the way. This is one of the best things I've read on this documentary, and I, I commend it to everyone. Um, but you, you quote something that Wade Robson's wife says really late in the film, in the second half, um, which was this, this quote that made me, one of many things that made me cry when she said it in the documentary, which was, love is so powerful, right? Which sounds out of context like a, a very uplifting Hallmarkian sentiment, but she was using it specifically in regards to talking about why her husband, Wade Robson, decided to testify at the 2005 trial, knowing that he was perjuring himself, but trying to protect Michael Jackson, who he still loved. And that's a huge part of this documentary is the the love that both of these men had for Michael Jackson and the, the, the huge journey that they had to make to even conceive of what happened to them as abuse. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's definitely a really striking moment in the documentary and the question of like how love in an abusive context exists and what that means is so wrenching and i i do think that yeah that it's it's a microcosm in a lot of ways for for our relationship to these icons and stars that we you know in many ways create and and project and and all of those sort of psychological mechanisms of love that work in everyday life and even in extreme dark circumstances like this case of abuse that that all happens with celebrity too that we that it is always an exploitive relationship and it's always full of projection and it's always full of a, an unevenness and that unevenness falls in different ways in different cases but that we there's a real tendency to, just as you were saying, kind of hallmarkize romantic love. So we too, we can kind of hallmarkize our relationship to celebrity and our relationship to cultural power. You know, like one of the things 
every once in a while thinking about this story alongside the cases in the Catholic Church with priests abusing children. And one of the things that keeps striking me about it is that in a lot of ways in a in a congregation, in a parish, the priest is a celebrity, right? That same charisma and that same imputed authority and, and the idea that they know better than you do what's right and all of those kinds of things, those power dynamics are built in in the same way. And and so, you know, we can't wish away. I think that there's something in human nature that creates celebrity and that wants to make these larger than life figures but I think that, yeah, we have to understand that, like, culture is riddled with this problem. Can I bring this down to the plane of, like, your Spotify account and or the, the mixtape? Like, Carl, I don't know what your actual music listening habits. Maybe you have to be bathed constantly in a flow of new tracks in order to keep up with all of the music world is throwing off to us. But how will watching the documentary change how you personally deploy Michael Jackson in your life, if it will at all. I mean, I think it does change it in the sense, you know, I mean, in many ways, you know, my experiences with Michael Jackson's music aren't really a present test tense issue. You know, it's it's over decades of of dealing with his music. And in a lot of ways, like, I, you know, I was never the kind of committed fan that must have to deal with him in a different way. You know, when, when the sort of peak period of Michael Jackson ended, my relationship with sort of 90s Michael Jackson, when a lot of his work started to sound like a reaction and a, a kind of paranoid fantasy that was wrapped around being under suspicion and dogged by tabloids and all those things. And so like, I'm a I'm a, a distance from it now, but at the same time, you know, at a dance party at my house or even just hanging out with friends, if somebody said, Hey, put on Billie Jean, you know, let's dance. The, you know, that, that definitely feels like something that I won't have that kind of casual relationship with for a good time to come. And I think one of the things that feels useful is to realize that while we're grappling with issues like this and revelations like this, I think a kind of moratorium, on our on on our listening, you know, and again, everybody can make these choices, but sort of collectively and publicly, it feels like for a time, things become radioactive and you need to get some distance before you can say, okay, now we can listen to this as like a representative of its time or in relationship to the other music of the 80s and 90s and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've heard Michael Jackson unbidden out in the wild um, in restaurants and stores and that kind of thing since I've seen the documentary and it. I definitely flinch quite a bit when I hear it. It's funny that you mentioned Billie Jean specifically, Carl, because when we got our, our preview screeners for this and we knew we were going to talk about it on the show, the actual day that I knew I was going to watch this heavy documentary about Michael Jackson, I was sort of putting it off because I knew it was going to be a hard watch. And uh, and I had some gifts to wrap and I was sitting there wrapping gifts and listening to the radio and on came Billie Jean. And I just had this very elegiac experience of it coming on by chance. It's maybe my favorite Michael Jackson hit and thinking, well, I'm just going to really enjoy this. I'm going to have one last good listen <laughs> to Billie Jean as it was because it will never be the same again. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely the case. And I mean, the other thing in my current listening that feels relevant is that there's all these figures in contemporary pop 
you know, people like um, Bruno Mars or Justin Bieber or The Weeknd. Um, there was a Drake track on his last album that sampled an unreleased Michael Jackson track. And that was kind of a, a coup um, showing off Drake's power to have access to these kinds of things. So the, the sound of Michael is in is on the radio anyway. You know, it's all still there. And even if we put the particular recordings aside, it's I think more about the fact that that influence is still going to be there. And, and I can't shut off my awareness that that's happening. I mean, one of the things that struck me so much about The Weeknd when he first started making it the sort of top 40 version of his music was how eerily reminiscent of Michael Jackson his voice was. And so there's all of that, you know, in, in, in our listening ecology to deal with, too. Carl, let me make a case for why it will be personally very hard. So first of all, I totally agree with you. I mean, this historical importance of him, it's like you don't cancel Napoleon because he invaded Russia. I mean, you know, the, the historical importance is un, uh, uh, is untouchable and anyone attempting to describe or teach or in any way engage with the history of popular music is going to include Michael Jackson prominently just by simple recitation of the facts. But, you know, the, the complex question is, you know, what do radio stations do? What do we do? What do we do when we hear it come on, a, uh, 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 you know, um, at a dance floor? You know, what do you uh, what do you say to your kids about listening to it or not listening to it? I mean, sort of where do you draw these personal lines? And let me make a something of a distinction between Dickens and, and Jackson that goes beyond the obvious fact that Dickens is several generations beyond dead. I mean, you know, there's not a single living person who who has any personal experience with, you know, anyone who knew Charles Dickens. Um, and so in some sense, we can read his books moving beyond whatever reprehensible things he might have done with his wife or to his wife. But with Jackson, it's different, not just because we're nearer in time, but because Jackson... To me, one of the defining things about him is is his coincidence with the rise of MTV, and therefore, you know, how do you ever take the the music or the work of art and separate it out from the person? I mean, the the the, the sort of totality of imagery that attended post MTV stardom, um, you know, it was really insinuating. It was really intimate or faux intimate. That's certainly part of the story, the ubiquity of his image. Um, and um, it will always be his voice. It's as if, you know, Dickens were only a book on tape and you had to reckon with that voice, that human being's voice in order to experience the thing itself. Um, and so I'm curious about that aspect of it, you know, just from a personal point of view, um, how detachable is one's you know skin crawling response to what we now know when you are engaging with the person in some way but then also um how much do you think i mean there's been some debate on twitter about this i mean how much do you think a notion of his own monstrosity and monstrous guilt entered into his music i mean it's a big question that um that especially revisiting some of the music to write this piece definitely struck me anew um you know one of the important things about Jackson's biography is the fact that um, the fact that he was drafted into this business by his father and and quite forcibly so and was an abuse victim himself in the in the very moment that the world was enjoying this um, this supposed innocence and and kind of miraculous joy of the Michael Jackson of the Jackson Five and then we hear these stories and think about what he was contending with and not knowing in what way he was psychologically grappling with these things, except in the way that he created this public image of this, you know, somewhat 
desexualized and beyond that even dehumanized figure where he was constantly transforming into animals and zombies and monsters and all of these things in his visual representations. Um, and then the, the dancing, you know, the dancing, which in so many ways brings us back to his body, except in the ways that his dancing seems so freed from bodiliness in so many ways that, that that also becomes a kind of paradox. And one of, you know, we can't, we don't have access to the interior of Michael Jackson. And we, in a lot of ways, we never did. He was always kind of a masked and elusive figure as a creative artist, you know, much more than a lot of them are. So we're left with this, with this set of questions about, you know, what the integrity of his sense of self was and what his relationship to a secret life that he may have had might've been. And all of those things felt like paradoxes that we were dealing with while he was still active. And, and those things are even more uh, mysterious to us now. I think the, the thing that, the thing that I keep thinking is that um, is that in some ways that splitness and that dividedness that we imagine in him is a truth about performers in general, and that that it's a reminder to to sort of catch ourselves in our naive equation of the image and the person and the work, all of those things that we kind of in our fantasy version of an artist imagine as a whole and, and to realize that, you know, just as like Jackson's creativity and his philanthropic work and what kind of abusive things he might've been doing were not all of a piece and they weren't all necessarily a coordinated agenda in the same way, you know, the way that we imagine our favorite artists is somehow like these figures of virtue who are bearing and representing virtue. That's, that's one of the things that makes me want to sort of keep myself on alert and, and kind of try to remember that in the way that we talk about culture um, in the wake of this. All right. Well, the piece is called uh, Jackson's Legacy. It's too late to cancel Michael Jackson, of course, by Carl Wilson. Carl, tremendous uh, piece of writing. And as always, just a complete pleasure to talk to you on the show. So good. I'm glad I had you guys to talk this through with. All right. Well, in keeping with a show that was not in keeping with any of our previous shows, we're going to skip endorsements in lieu of just saying all three of us uh, unanimously that you should watch this documentary. And... Um, Please share your thoughts about it with us wherever Twitter you'll find us. All right. Yeah, I would just add that after you watch it, you're going to want to talk about it. So watch it with someone you love or have them on hand afterwards. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. Uh, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or uh, please interact with us, especially about this documentary. We'd, we'd very much like to hear what you thought about it at our Twitter feed, which is at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, and also, of course, Car- uh, this week, Carl Wilson and Christina Cotarucci, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Here's a short preview of our Slate Plus segment, otherwise known as Slat Plus segment for today. If you want to hear the whole thing, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus. Absolutely everything about this miniature world is designed in every respect to pleasure and flatter Michael Jackson, that instead of making him um, 
instead of making him childlike, you know, what it should have alerted you to is that it was kind of a totalitarian setup in a bizarre way, even though it's every artifact was dedicated to a child's view of the world. And it's it's that perversity that that came home over and over and over again. I mean, if there's an aspect of the story that's part of what the two men are talking about, but not necessarily directly, you know, a result of their own testimony, but the documentaries, that to me was really it. And and um, I think Neverland is a big character in this, and I just wanted to signal that. Thanks for listening. Again, to hear the whole thing, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash Culture Plus.